The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Rack and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is your newscast for episode 194 for the week of January 18th, 2021. Alex, uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. How about you, Rob? Doing fantastic. You know, this we're just a couple of days away from an inauguration. I don't know if you've heard of any news about that, but there's a, there's going to be a new president for the United States. Yeah, there is. Um, also, if you are you're listening to this uh, recently after it was released, it it may actually be Martin Luther King Day as well. Oh heck yeah! This is a great week. Uh, looking forward to to both of those things. I I actually have Monday off. I know you don't, sucker. Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, you know, lots of hope and optimism. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, let's uh, jump into some housekeeping. We have a Slack channel. Uh, speaking of hope and optimism, if you stay in the good stuff channel in Slack, you're going to get lots of optimism. If you go to the rant channel, don't blame me. Uh, Rob, do you know we also have a mailing list? Uh, every week we send out one and exactly one email with the show notes from that week's podcast. So if you want all the details about what we talk about here on the show, uh, sign up on the website, colorado-security.com to get that email sent to you. And if, and if you, uh, while you're on the website signing up for the mailing list, you can also find the link to join Slack there. Uh, we'd love it if you would rate us and subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcatcher. Uh, that's a good way for us to find new listeners and for you to make sure this uh, podcast makes it into your inbox each week. Yeah. And we'd also love for you to tell a friend about Colorado Equal Security, about the Slack channel, about the podcast, about the website. Um, and, you know, you're also welcome to tell them that we have a Patreon campaign going on. Uh, we love our patrons, and they help uh, defray the costs of what we do for Colorado Equal Security. Awesome. All right, let's jump into some news. Starting this week, this is some hard-hitting journalism. We, we're going to talk about the top 10 <laughs> um, most stolen vehicles in the Denver metro area. Yeah, and if you have one of these, sucks to be you. Um, or, or, I mean, it's great to be them because they have a very desirable car. Uh, yeah, potentially. I don't know if it's desirable because they want to drive it. It's desirable because it's I don't know, worth something. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, the, these lists seem to come out, you know, once or twice a year or something like that. Um, on the list, um, I don't remember when the last time we talked about this was. I know we have before, but number one is the Chevy Silverado. So yeah. Ahead, yeah, Alex. very interesting there. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking back, Rob, it may also not be that they're desirable. Maybe it's just they're the easiest to steal. Yeah, I actually couldn't decide as I was reading this. I'm like, do I want to see a car I like on this list or not on this list? I mean, if they don't steal it, that means they don't like it. But if they do steal it, maybe it means it's easy to steal. I don't know. Right. Um, that that said, I also think there's a, there's a strong uh, bias toward cars that have been around for a while. If it's a brand new car, you, there's only right. one model year worth of them. There's not as many to steal. Uh, and this is kind of combining all years of those cars being stolen. The list is actually much more uh, U.S. centric than I would have guessed. You know, considering the fact that it feels to me like we have a lot more foreign cars than domestic these days. Uh, six of the ten cars are, are U.S. cars. There's the Silverado, like you said, but then the the Ford F two fifty, F one fifty, and F three fifty all made the list, along with the Ram fifteen hundred. Yeah, it seems like people like to steal trucks. Uh, Chevy Silverado. You mentioned those Fords. Oh, and the, and the GMC Sierra too. I forgot to mention yeah, that. Which GMC I think Sierra. isn't the Sierra just like a rebranded Silverado. Uh, it probably is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the other ones are the Honda Civic is number two. The Accord is number three. Uh, the Hyundai Sonata number nine and pulling in number 10 is the Honda CRV. Honda makes the list in three different spots as well. 
Yeah, I, I feel like from looking at this list before that uh, that Honda Accord and Civic are usually on here. So I'm not sure exactly why, but uh, I guess they are popular cars and they've been around a long time. Yeah, I do. I think there's just a lot of them on the road. Cool. All right. Uh, next, uh, we have an interesting story here. I, I, this is, I think, one of the more interesting ones uh, of the week. There is a new tech firm or newish tech firm in Denver that is trying to solve the problem of political polling errors by not doing surveys. Yeah, you know, I actually heard a interview with these guys on the Colorado Matters podcast. I don't know if it was this week or last week. Um, he, and the, the CEO was describing how they do this. I mean, there's there's honestly not a lot of crazy science here. Um, they're using Google... Um, was it trend search trends? I can't remember what they call that, but you know, you're, you have the ability to go see how different uh, search terms are trending in different geos. And they're using those trends to figure out uh, what are people's sentiments toward the different candidates. And you, they actually are suggesting that their results are more accurate than the political polls that people have been using to determine uh, who we believe is going to win elections. Yeah. But you know, the company's name is, uh, Unum or Unum AI. So obviously they're using artificial intelligence for this, Rob. So it is extremely sophisticated. Okay. <laughs> maybe they are. Uh, I didn't, um, I didn't catch that, but like I said, may, maybe I, I don't understand all the details there. Yeah. stuff though, And it's, it, they are showing at least their initial results showing better, better uh, reliability than the, the typical polls are. Yeah. It looks like they are cheaper than a typical poll. I think because you don't have to hire people to go out and, you know, stand outside of polling locations or other things like that. Uh, and they do seem to be fairly accurate. Uh, it said that their methodology led to the correct outcome in 93% of uh, swing U.S. Senate races and 58% of swing U.S. House races. Um, and you might say, whoa, 93 versus 58, that's a pretty big difference. But that 58% um, is actually twice as accurate as uh, more traditional polling methods. Which is crazy, which it means basically that the polling methods were getting more than half of things wrong yeah. last, this last election cycle, which seems like you wouldn't want that kind of polling to exist at all. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're 29% right, is it really worth doing? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it is. Hey, let's move along. Uh, speaking of another technology, I mean, the only reason this is in the show is because I was surprised to learn that Parler, the now infamous social network, uh, was founded by two DU grads. Yeah, and I think we have heard a lot about Parler recently. Um, you know, in the the lead up to um, the election, once um, Twitter started, uh, you know, doing what they've been doing, and people wanted to move somewhere else, everyone seemed to move to Parler or, or other places. And of course, this last week with uh, Amazon and others pulling the plug on Parler, so basically they're they're shut down at this point. So yeah, uh, so it was founded by two DU grads, but it was actually founded in Nevada. Um, and after kind of all this became famous in the last couple of weeks, DU has issued a statement um, <laughs> condemning all acts of violence and, and really yeah. trying to distance themselves from this. So uh, I'm not sure DU appreciates us pointing out this connection, but it's interesting to me to know a couple of Colorado guys were behind this whole thing. And I, yeah. I don't, just to be fair, I'm not sure that creating Parlor in and of itself is all that big a deal, bad a thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's been used inappropriately and that's probably what's more interested to figure out. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest part is their reaction to it being um, used poorly. So yeah. anyway, uh, next, uh, some not so good news. Uh, there was a, it sounds like it's not even an announcement yet, but it's sort of a, a, a rumor that there's going to be an announcement that U.S. Space Command is going to move to Alabama and not stay in Colorado, which was what people thought was going to happen. Yeah, if you know, we we talked a lot about this um, and how 
you know, initially, you know, we, we got the temporary headquarters for Space Command. Um, we were, you and I were surprised when, whenever that was, you know, a few months ago to, to, to hear that it that hadn't been finalized as like the permanent home. Right. Uh, and now it looks like it's going to get moved to Alabama. You know, the, the hubbub about this is it's, it's because, you know, as one of Trump's last things, he wants to reward one of the, the states that supported him uh, the most through the election and, and maybe stick it to one of those states that didn't, which is Colorado. Uh, who knows? Uh, I, I do, I do think that, you know, we'll, we'll get formal notification on this here in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, hopefully that, that decision ch- turns around. If not, um, whatever, <laughs> we move on. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was actually a good discussion about this in the Slack channel this week. And um, I personally hadn't realized uh, how much of a space presence there is in Huntsville, Alabama, where this would be. So uh, some people thought it made sense. Uh, in this article, there are lots of Colorado politicians that are complaining, uh, obviously saying it's the wrong move, that it's not fiscally responsible, yada, yada, yada. So uh, hopefully, um, it, even though uh, we're thinking it's going to Alabama, maybe it will still end up in Colorado. Who knows? We'll find out. All right. Next story is a, is a, one of these fun ones from Colorado Inno, uh, and it's going through 21 Colorado startups to watch in 2021. Um, there are a lot of companies on this list that we've talked about in the past, and I don't want to try and go through all of those, uh, but Climber, who we just talked about recently, the indoor exercise company. Um, company six. De- Demo Flow. Yeah, Company Six is that spinoff from Sphero. Yep. Uh, lots of lots of really good ones, but there was one in here that I specifically wanted to mention, and I'm trying to, yeah, here it is. You better not uh, steal mine, Rob. Well, I'm sure I am. Is it Heka? Is that, is that how oh, we would no. say this? Heka, no, Heka? It's a rural Colorado startup that's a, uh, it's focused on privacy and security micro training uh, built into Slack. So their platform helps your company meet compliance training requirements for HIPAA, GDPR, SOC 2, CCPA, and more while building a culture of privacy all within your Slack tenant. Uh, so I personally, I had not heard of these guys yet. And you know, as I read the article, I sent a note over to part of my team to say, hey, we should look at this and see if this is something we want to do. Um, so really cool to see a local security startup that is uh, that is new and is on the list of companies to watch next year. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and obviously right up our alley. The, the one actually that I was going to talk about um, is more utilitarian and, uh, and fun um, than compliance training, uh, which was Roxbox. Uh, this company uses shipping containers to make uh, temporary structures. So temporary bars, uh, they're now doing uh, an offering called Patio Box for restaurants, you know, with all of the uh, indoor dining uh, being disallowed, you know, you can get some of these enclosures and they can uh, seat up to 36 guests, depending on the model. Um, and they have other other things besides that too, but I thought that was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that we got to each find something different that, that speaks to us individually. For sure. All right. Uh, next, uh, we get to meet the finalists for the Orbi Awards uh, from Colorado CIO. This is the the best CIOs in Colorado. Yeah, we've uh, I think we've talked about this in previous years. I think generally we don't put a, a ton of focus on these, but uh, I know this year one of the finalists is not only a CIO but also a CISO. Uh, he's he's at working as interim CIO for Holland and Hart, and that's James Johnson. James is a friend of the show. He's a former. Uh, president of ISSA Denver, and uh, an all-around good guy. I think we've had him on a, as a guest on the show in the past as well. Uh, he's one of the fo- finalists in the in the corporate category, which is kind of like that small, medium size um, category. Hopefully, for, hope James ends up being a winner. But e- either way, I'm glad to see him recognized. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, 
One of the other people on the list that I know is uh, Jamie Cutler, who is now at Air Methods, who used to be my boss uh, several jobs ago. So uh, congrats to Jamie. Uh, Well-deserved for him. Yeah, it seems like Jamie just moved not that long ago and it's already on the list. He's And he was on the list always at, for these kind of things when he was at um, at QEP as well. Uh, I guess he's uh, he, he either knows the right people or he's just good enough to get recognized wherever he goes. Uh, he, he is good, but I, I'm sure he also has a good PR team behind him. Probably a little bit of each, right? Yep. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, next, we're moving over to our security news. We actually have some big news for Swimlane. Um, Swimlane is the local SOAR, you know, security orchestration response um, company. And they, as of the end of the year, have brought in a new CEO, uh, Cody Cornell, who we've had on the show a couple times over the years and has been a great friend of the show. Uh, is He was, you know, co-founder and and a uh, and CEO of the, of the company is moving over to be their chief strategy officer. And they're bringing in a more experienced CEO to lead them through this next level of growth. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool. I think it's good news for them. Uh, I mean, in a, I don't mean that in a, anything negative about Cody, but um, you know, I think Cody at his heart as a technologist and as they grow um, and as, you know, startups generally grow, you know, you want to bring in someone that has that experience in terms of leadership and, you know, growing a company and has been through this thing before, um, the, and the new CEO, James Breer, um, he has definitely done that. He was previously a uh, CEO of Veriflow, which was bought by VMware in 2019, um, and has a whole list of startups that he's worked with, uh, before that. So pretty cool. Seems like a good move for them and hopefully it continues to help them grow and, and be awesome. Yeah. When, when you read his bio, it's, it's packed with uh, companies he was at and the great exits he had for them, you know, right. many of them being acquired, uh, but some of them, actually one of them specifically recently that was, that went public. Um, and, and I think, you know, if I was a, you know, someone like Cody and the leadership team at Swimlane and, and saw this guy's track record, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of result we want to see, you know, either getting acquired or, you know, going public either way. Um, awesome to see that guy has that track record of success. Um, and it's also, you know, a, a couple other things from this article that I found interesting is, is just the amount of growth they've had at Swimlane. You know, it's been a while since I've checked in on the numbers, but they're over a hundred employees now. Um, and, and, you know, have, they've raised tens of millions of dollars um, and lots and lots of international cu customers at this point. So um, they are kicking butt. And, and this is just a, a kind of a sign of the success that they, they've had so far and hopefully continues going forward in the future. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Uh, next story uh, Logarithm has some big news. They have acquired the threat detection platform MistNet, um, and they have done that to help uh, grow their network detection, uh, UEBA capabilities, uh, EDR, as well as um, additional detections around MITRE, det MITRE attack. So pretty cool acquisition for them. Yeah, I read through the this release and there was an awful lot of buzzwords and I got a little bit lost in the buzzwords <laughs> at one point. But uh, overall, you know, the, the XDR thing always kind of throws me off. Yeah, it, it um, is a, a silly term. But but it, you know what the biggest surprise to me was um, from a uh, a LinkedIn post from James Carter, the CISO over there, was that this is the first acquisition that Logarithm's ever done. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously they they are not just out there trying to aqua hire their way to success. This is a this must be a very strategic acquisition for them. You know, Logarithm's been around for you know well over a decade, maybe close to two decades at this point. Uh, and they've they've now finally decided to to do an acquisition. I, I'm I'm excited to see what this looks like and how this is going to uh, change their go to market and their product offerings. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, MissNet was a, definitely a um, a technology that did similar things to what Logarithm uh, does, but in a you know a more targeted way. And um, I think it'll probably help 
move their platform forward. So pretty cool there. Good stuff. Uh, speaking of acquisitions, we have another uh, acquisition this week. There's not a, a ton of details here, but Coalfire um, has acquired a uh, a penetration testing uh, management platform from a company called, or in buying a company called, is it Neuralysis? Neuralis? Sure sounds good. Neuralis. Um, and, and there's not a lot of details here on exactly what this is going to mean, but this is a, an interesting acquisition for them. You know, they, they bought Varus a few years ago and I'm sure they have some other acquisitions, but mostly of like services companies, this is, uh, or, you know, this is a technology that they're buying, right? A platform for doing pen testing. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they use this to, to you know, kind of make themselves better equipped to, uh, to meet new needs from customers. And I'm excited to see where this is going to go. Yeah, and I didn't look into the details of that platform itself, but you know, I have seen other platforms that you know build themselves as pen test management platforms, and a lot of it is the, you know, the workflow and you know the back and forth over results and things like that. You know, many times you get a pen test and you say, okay, go test, and then a few weeks later you get handed a, a Word doc or a PDF, and then you've got to, mm-hmm. you know, sift through that and figure out what the actual results are, and um, you know, then go go figure out if they're true and things like that. So I think um, my guess is that this platform helps automate that process, makes uh, penetration testing easier easier for both sides. All right, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, moving on here, Ping Identity uh, announced, had a press release this week announcing that we, uh, we being uh, Ping because I worked there, uh, we were n- named by Glassdoor as one of the Employees' Choice Award winners. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we've talked about similar words like this for ping in the past. It seems like uh, people sure like to work there and, you know, definitely shows with an employee's choice kind of award. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. I, I, I don't know a ton about this. You know, I know Glassdoor as the place you go to look before you go work at a company to see do people like to work there. Um, they, but they, what they did is they categorized all companies across the U S uh, into either large enterprises or SMB basically. And, and ping made the, the small medium size. Um, but they were the number number nineteen company in across all SMBs across the country, and and frankly, there's a lot of companies on the list I'd never heard of. Um, interesting to me that you know that that it was such a large pool that we were competing against. Anyway, cool stuff to see, and uh, I, I it is nice to work at a company that, that cares about culture and engagement. That is pretty cool. Um, I'm pretty sure though, Rob, that you mischaracterized Glassdoor. Um, I believe that it is the the place where you go to bitch about being mistreated by your company. Is that what it's for? My bad. My bad. All right. Uh, final story for the week. Uh, we talked about this a couple months ago, but Jump Cloud, um, they had done their Series E for uh, $75 million, and they have now announced that they have oversubscribed that Series E and raised it up to $100 million, as well as using some of that money to add a chief revenue officer. Yeah. I mean, obviously, th- this is just kind of a follow-up on that that first raise, but the chief revenue officer is great. This is This is a huge sign that that Jump Cloud is is kind of becoming a, a real player, and um, you know it's nice to see Colorado continue to extend our own security and specifically here identity companies um, to be you know one of the leaders in the world. Yeah, pretty cool. So uh, obviously, twenty five million more dollars than they were expecting, which is awesome. But also, uh, Kevin Biggs, who it did not give a whole lot of details for in the article, is now the chief revenue officer. Yeah, I don't know who Kevin Biggs is. Um, you know, big, maybe maybe big. if you talk for a second, I'll look him up on LinkedIn. We'll see what we can find out. Uh, while you do that, um, that is the end of the news. Uh, we can loop back once you find your. your well, this is interesting. There, he was he was the chief revenue officer for one login, which oh. you know, my first thought would be, hey, there's a non compete there, but he's also in California, so non competes are uh, not <laughs> not a consideration for someone in California. 
Cool. Uh, well, that seems like a, a good hire for Jump Cloud then. Congrats yeah. to them. All right. Uh, so that is the news. Uh, with that, we can move over to the Slack message of the week. Thanks to Andre Gaeta for uh, supporting this. Again, he has supported this all the way since the beginning, even before it was Slack message of the week when it was trivia. Um, and, uh, you know, he does this uh, out of the goodness of his heart and the depths of his pocketbook. Uh, the winner of the Slack message of the week will get one item from the Colorado Equal Security Swag Store. And Rob, who is the winner? This week, it's DJ MacArthur. DJ, uh, you know, we do kind of a little uh, holiday thing with some of the CISOs in town where we let the group kind of vote on each other for a series of different awards. Well, DJ won one of the awards this year. Um, and and as a kind of a, a, a fun acceptance speech for his award, he put together a music video with him playing drums and... Uh, and uh, posted that music video in Slack and it get, got a good laugh from me and it basically raised the stakes for what's going to be expected from anyone else who wins any awards going forward. For sure. Um, it was an amazing video. Uh, DJ was playing the drums. Uh, he seems to be a great drummer and I, I was pretty impressed with his skills as well as his creativity in the thank you. So congrats to DJ for both things. All right. Let's jump over to our holiday or our calendar of events that is uh you know we, we always look at what's coming up the next two weeks in town of course in town these days means virtually in town uh you can go look out for really there's quite a few things on the calendar now there there weren't a few weeks ago but things have been filling in uh, you can look and th see things out for the next several months but in the next two weeks we start off with on the 19th the colorado springs issa chapter is doing their january virtual meeting also on the 19th csa is doing their january virtual meeting on the 20th, OWASP is doing a joint chapter meeting, and uh, that's going to be a combination of the uh, Denver and Boulder chapters. Nice. On the 21st, ISACA Denver is doing their January chapter meeting, and that is in conjunction with the IIA. Also on the 21st in the morning, ISIS, the physical security group in town. I said ISIS again. I did it last time. <laughs> ASIS, ASIS uh, is doing their women in security coffee chat with Don Gregory. On the 23rd, Colorado Springs ISSA is doing their January mini-seminar. Um, on the 26th, ASIS is doing their Young Professional Networking Happy Hour with Taylor Passanello. Nice. And then uh, we have two events on the 27th. ISC Squared Pikes Peak is doing their chapter meeting for January. And Denver ISSA is doing an event called Your Presence Matter matters, excuse me, how to show up as your best on video. So not a security talk, it sounds like, but uh, how to have better meetings. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty relevant for us security people anyway. Yeah, definitely relevant. All right. Uh, jumping over to jobs. You know, we, we always like to talk about uh, some interesting jobs in the community. And because I am uh, one of the co-hosts, I get to talk about jobs at Ping. And we've got a few in, the, in my team. Uh, we're hiring a product security engineer. So if you have an application security background or just a development background with a passion for security, I'd love to talk to you. I'm also looking to hire a business analyst focused on my security program. And finally, a manager for our privacy programs, someone to run privacy within Ping. Nice. Uh, Fast Enterprises is looking for an information security analyst. Schenker is looking for an IT governance specialist focused on security. Black Hills Energy is looking for a corporate IT security analyst Parentheses Frederick. So I'm assuming that is in Frederick, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. I, I put that note in there because we don't get a lot of jobs in Frederick. And I thought yeah. anyone who's who's thinking about that job, this is a good time to apply. For sure. Uh, Slack is hiring an associate risk and compliance engineer focused on IT uh, governance and compliance. 
Uh, U.S. Department of Interior is looking for an IT cybersecurity specialist. Uh, that's is a that GS twenty two ten. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> GS twenty two ten is what that is. Yeah, twenty two ten slash dash twelve slash thirteen. So, you know, for your government folks, I'm sure that makes all the sense in the world. A lot of sense. Hey, we also have a job from Pulte Group where Alex and I have both worked in the past. Pulte is looking to hire a senior IT security analyst. Uh, Ball Corp is looking for a manager of IT audit. And that is it for jobs. We uh, we made it through the, the news portion of the podcast, but we do have a feature interview this week, Alex. Wow, that's awesome. Who are we talking to, Rob? We've got Joey Stanford coming to talk to us. Joey is the head of security, compliance, and privacy for Platform.sh, which is a company that I, I suspect most of our listeners have never heard of. But when you hear about their customers, you'll realize you've been working with them on, on their platform quite a bit. Very good. Very good. Um, and this was done by Janelle, correct? Yeah, Janelle, thank you very much for doing the interview. We, uh, we look forward to hearing it. And um, and of course, uh, any anybody out there who has ideas for folks you'd like us to talk to, send us a note and we'll, we'll definitely consider it. And, and if we can reach out to them, we probably will. Uh, one other note that uh, Janelle had sent us, uh, one of the things that they talk about on this uh, interview is that uh, Joey is a mentor with Security Career Connections. So uh, we're going to put a link to that in the show notes. Good stuff. All right, Alex, we'll have a great week and everyone else will look forward to talking to you guys again next week. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Ed Fuller, CISO with Cloud Elements. This is Colorado Security for Colorado Security Professionals by Colorado Security Professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. So this is Janelle Shaw, and today I am super excited to conduct an interview with Joey Stanford, who is the Security, Compliance, and Data Protection Officer for Platform.sh, which is a company that's located in France. But I'd like to point out that Joey is not in France. In fact, he is in Longmont, Colorado. Um, and before I give the mic over to Joey, I just want to explain why I'm excited to conduct the interview with him. So we met at a local meetup, which was presenting on, GDP, on GDPR before anybody knew what GDPR was. And I can't remember if it was late 2017 or early 2018. And Joey, maybe you remember. But we were in um, one of those banquet rooms at one of the giant hotels. And we bonded over this inaccurate and incomplete information on GDPR that the speaker was giving. Um, and so I valued your security and privacy expertise ever since then. And I remember in those early years joking that we were like the lone DPO rangers in the state of Colorado, right? Because DPOs generally aren't stateside. So with that, why don't you um, give us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about platform.sh. Sounds good. I'm super to be here and hi everybody on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I, I have this really interesting title. I, you mentioned it earlier. I am a security compliance and data protection officer. That's a mouthful. Um, so I, I have, because I focus or I specialize in startup security, um, when you're in a startup, you tend to wear multiple hats and that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'm wearing the, the, um, the security hat. So, and since I am the only information security officer, so I am the chief information security officer, although I share the traditional CISO duties with my CTO. Uh, and then I have, uh, I am the compliance officer. So I'm the chief compliance officer because I'm the only one there. And then I have, strangely enough, this European data protection officer, which I'm officially designated at my supervisory authority in France, but also in the ICO in the UK, a couple of places in Germany. Uh, and then to make matters even more confusing, Australia. <laughs> so, uh, so I have all these things. Now, typically when you think about data protection officer, 
um, you know, written into the G GDPR, there are some guidelines about how you're not supposed to, you're supposed to be independent. Um, and so it is somewhat of a conflict of interest when you have somebody who is in charge of security and is also the data protection officer, right? You don't want to audit yourself kind of thing. And so I've, I've tried internally to, to take steps to, to limit that as much as possible. And then naturally as the organization grows and I can hire additional people and I can start um, taking some of my responsibilities and putting them off to different staff, which then allows me to take a vacation. <laughs> Vacations are nice for all of us. One of those things that all of us with a C in our title want to do. Totally true. So platform, uh, what does platform do? Platform is a platform as a service provider. What does that mean practically? It means if you're a developer and you write some code and you commit it to your Git branch, you just have to aim your Git branch over to platform and we do all the rest of the work. We are your IT department, we are your security department, we are your compliance department, we are your web hosting service, we are your ops people. So you do Git push and presto changeo, you have a website and an application live and we can clone pretty much any workload in, I think we're, we're at 40 seconds now, last time I checked. So it's pretty cool. So you can make, you can make multiple copies, multiple branches of your production environment, test things out in staging. And that's really, the, for me, this is what's really, one of the many things that's really interesting about platform is that our development, our staging and your platform in your uh, production environments are exactly the same, which is wonderful. So there's, you, you know, you completely remove that element from a typical development cycle. Exactly, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And uh, it makes rollback, it makes push out, it makes everything so much easier, that consistency. And so what is it like working for a company in France? That's, I don't think most of us have that opportunity to work you know, for a European country, let alone one in France. I, I, I jokingly, but it's true, say that the commute's a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like work, working from Europe, from Colorado was really interesting for a number of different reasons. One, uh, simply just because of the time zone overlap, you know, your days start earlier. Um, but and, you end earlier too, so that's a good thing. Ha ha ha! Oh, no, on, I'm, world, on, I'm worldwide, <laughs> so I get a I get a break uh, in the U.S. afternoons. I get a little bit of a break, and then it's on to Asia Pacific, um, and so then I catch the Asia Pacific train, and then I go to sleep, um, and then I come back, and then I wash, rinse, and repeat. So it's really difficult. I mean. I have to say this, uh, for, those, for those of you in Colorado, uh, working in Colorado and having your teams here or even teams stateside, you don't realize how wonderful that is until you're working in Europe and you realize you get really lonely because your staff is predominantly in, in Europe. Uh, and you have you know, this short period, a couple hours, two, three, four hours of overlap with your staff and the rest of your colleagues and decision makers. Um, and then you're, you're you're, uh, in my case, like I don't speak French, but I'm starting to because I have to deal with a French only speaking supervisory authority and uh, French, aud French only speaking auditors. Uh -huh. uh, so, it's, so it's really interesting from that aspect. And then you're also, like in my case, I am dealing with European law. Right. But I live in a completely different company, country, you know, almost halfway across the world. And so you're, I'm specializing in something that has no practical use <laughs> in, a, in a sense for here in Colorado. But that's really not true, right? Because you have people in Colorado, uh, companies in Colorado, companies in the United States that want to sell into Europe. Uh, and naturally, when you want to sell into Europe or do business with Europe, you need to comply with European laws. And so it does, um, it does actually have some value, which is 
a nice piece to it. Yeah, and I think definitely, you know, I'm still surprised when I run across companies who are just starting on their GDPR journey, right? You know, and unfortunately, there are quite a few of them that have been selling in Europe for, you know, since, you know, 20 for years and didn't realize that they had this obligation. Um, and you mentioned the canal. So I, I work predominantly with the ICO and the D, D, DPC, which is the UK and the Irish data protection authorities. I try very hard to stay away from the canal. And when I have to, I call my friend Joey. Um, on the rare occasions, I've had to have French connections. So what is it like? Um, they're known as a really hard uh, data protection authority. And so, you know, what is it, what's your, what's your um, take on them and how much are you, how familiar are you with their processes? They are really interesting. So the, the actual pronunciation, so I made a mistake uh, for many years and I called them the Canil and it's actually pronounced the Canil, which oh, is very difficult for English speakers to say the Canil. Um, so they are really interesting. They, the Canil started out as a organization with no teeth and very low substance. So in 1978, the French pa France passed the, their data protection um, laws, which were revolutionary at the time. Nobody else had them, um, and the French were the forefront. Um, when the CNIL was created, they didn't really provide them any sort of, of what I say teeth, they, there's no real fines, no real action they can take. They were just really a guidance. When GDPR came around, it turned the CNIL into I really gave them the teeth. And at this point, they really found their mission. Um, and they, they, they struggled for 2017, 2018. And in 2019, or thereabouts, they really got into this and they started to mature really fast. And they went from the back of the pack and, and honestly, they were laughed at by, by the other supervisory authorities and people that were in the privacy profession. Um, they, they went from the back of the pack to the forefront where they were leading and they were tackling interesting and new things, not only spe items specific to France, but also the larger GDPR and artificial intelligence um, and coming up with guidelines and rules. So this was really interesting. And so I've had experience with the, as you have, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office in the United Kingdom. Now the Information Commissioner's Office, when they come to you, they, they typically give you a one or two word sentence having been on the end of one of their audits, they give you one or two word se sentence, sorry, one or two line sentence that says, you know, tell us about this, explain to us how you responded to this. And the expectation for you is to come back and give them several paragraphs and some supporting data and whatnot, and then they will render a decision. Um, the the CNIL is a little bit different. They will give you forms to fill out. They will provide you with several paragraphs of information and requests for services. So they look at a more, where, where the ICO has traditionally been, let me get your point of view. The CNIL is more systematic and um, like whole system focused. They will give you the full list of items and say, tell us everything that's going on. And so they're looking across the entire spectrum of GDPR as well as French law to see, has there been any violations? And also, are you operating in a reasonable and prudent manner? And from that, they will actually give you opportunities for improvements like OFIs, although they don't, yep. they, they don't call them OFIs in particular. So it's, it's really a completely different um, aspect. The other piece too, is that the, <laughs> the CNIL is very slow. 
um, if you if you submit a request to them, you might get a response in two months. Oh, that's yeah. The ICO was thirty five days. You know, uh, when I've had to work with them. So you've mentioned audit a couple times. Why have you or why has Platform had to be audited? So uh, the audit I mentioned with the ICO was for a different company. It was for my last employer. Okay. <laughs> um, Platform has not, uh, unfortunately, has not uh, been okay. audited by the supervisory authority. I have made some, uh, 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 what's the right word in English? Uh, I've made some early inquiries for uh, decisions that I've had to take, um, not related to any security breaches or whatnot, but right. just, hey, I want to think about going this way. Could you please confirm my approach? What is your preference? Um, and those take even longer. They, the the Keneal actually has a dedicated DPO hotline for us, which is surprising that it still takes over a month and a half to get back well, to us. I was going to ask, uh, I know that one of the countries in Europe has a DPO certification, um, and so I don't so know if you know France does as well. Yeah. So do you, I mean, can you tell us anything about that? Have you registered with that? Or? So, so it's all in French, uh, and it's good for, it's good for one calendar year. Oh, that doesn't last very long. Exactly. So the, you, when you look at the benefits for having a certified DPO, uh, it, it really benefits DPO as a service, as opposed to, yeah. uh, you know, in-house DPO. Yeah, absolutely. And then these early inquiries, like I think that's kind of, you know, being stateside, most of us that are dealing with GDPR and in the DPO role, we don't have the benefit of being in Europe to kind of see what the boots on the ground there are doing and the DPO camps that they have and the meetups that they have. Um, and so how are you making sure that the documentation that you're providing is going to satisfy the requests for all of the data protection authorities that you're working with, or do you have any strategies for that? Uh, yeah, so we've uh, I've done two things. The first is I've made sure all the documentation is in English, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, when we have to respond to the the Keneal, I have people that are able to translate everything. Yeah. So our company does everything in English, which is really nice, um, American English at that, not even UK and uh, British English. Um, the other thing I've done is I've done a I've taken a selection of, so I've acquired a set of various forms for different things. So, you know, here's, here's my, uh, you know, re re report on compliance. Here's my, um, here's my ROPA. Here's you know, my list of vendors. Here is the breach notification process. And I've taken the, the requirements that come from the CNIL, from the ICO, from a variety of uh, supervisory authorities that have published. And I've merged all of them together. I've even used stuff from the, from the Federal Trade Commission. So like HIPAA yeah. breaches, as a matter of fact. Um, and I've roped all those up. And so my strategy has been and this is, this is somewhat unique, but not terribly unique. Uh, my, my, Strategy has been to be GDPR compliant everywhere. So I call it GDPR everywhere approach. Yep. Um, and when, you, when I do that, when you do that, it allows you to very quickly to start satisfying things like CCPA, assuming you don't sell, uh, Pipetta in Canada, the APA in Australia, New Zealand's privacy laws, et cetera, um, even BDSG in Germany. Uh, so you have, so I built all these and I've tried to say that there's, there's one way of doing things worldwide um, and just because we don't need to apply, say, GDPR deletion process in the United States, I don't want to have a local process for that. I, and there's lots of reasons for that. But if you look on the security side, which a lot of the people listening to this are really focused on security, right? Yeah. I don't want to carry that that personally identifiable information, that personal data around with me. I want to I, I want to use it when I'm done with it. I want to get rid of it. I want to discard it so that it limits my lim, limits the amount of exposure that I have. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. And all the clients that I work with, I try and make that case as well, right? Like there's so much return on investment by just having one program that you have to implement instead of trying to make it jurisdiction um, or regulation specific. And GDPR is the gold standard. Um, there doesn't seem to be any reason not to provide the rights unless the company has a hard time doing it, right? So then that kind of transitions right over into security. So being in charge of the privacy program, how does that benefit the security program for platform? So I have a compliance team and I have a security team. And my joke, uh, internal joke, is that it takes two to make a thing go right. So on my security side, I have the real deep technical security people. They're the traditional people that have CISSPs. They do pen testing or that sort of stuff. And on the compliance side, I have they're, they're typically uh, you know, lawyers and compliance people that are really non-technical, but really are knowledgeable of the law, contracts, uh, data processing agreements that sort of stuff. So in order to have privacy, you need security. You don't need, you know, you don't, privacy itself does not give you security in my book. You have to have security first and then privacy is this, like a subset of security, right, for that. So my two teams work hand in hand together to be able to accomplish the mission and, and the majority of stuff that I focus on in my current world is oftentimes driven by standards. So SOC 2, PCI, ISO 27000, FISMA, uh, Secnum Cloud in Europe. There's a new, there's a new European uh, equivalent of FedRAMP that's coming. It's called EUCC and it combines parts of Secnum Cloud. Secnum Cloud is France's version, a uh, very thin version of FedRAMP. For those, of the, for those listening that have FedRAMP experience and FISMA experience, Secnum Cloud is a brief uh, for that, um, but there are very unique requirements for Europe, such as all of your support has to be has to be um, provided out out of Europe, like in Europe, um, right. and local countries have to have first level support in that language, um, things of that nature. And so, a lot of this stuff that's coming, it's been it's been brewing in Europe, and it's a reaction to. A couple of things: European nationalism that was there, um, individual state nationalism that was there prior to the EU and then the EU formed and then of course all of the stuff that's happened with the SREMS 2 decision last July. Um, for those of you not aware, SREMS 2 was where they said privacy shield is no longer valid and they cited to um, FISA 702. 702? Oh, yeah. It's been a day already. <laughs> I know. 702. But Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I, I call it being snow blind. Like literally there's so many regulations. Like I, 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 if I'm not my head down in one particular one, it's challenging. Uh, but mm -hmm. going back to the security piece. So are you, it sounds like security and privacy is sort of coming together in, in a marriage there in Europe more than it yeah, is so, in the United States. Right. So we have this in GDPR, we have this concept of privacy by design it actually predates GDPR, but GDPR really um, helped bring it to the forefront. And, I use two terms. I use the privacy by design, but I also use security by design. And security by design is stuff that we're already doing, right? We're, we're, looking, we're looking at how we design, design our systems. Um, you know, current, the current uh, FAD, which is actually, I think it's a great FAD, is zero trust, right? We're nothing trust, anything else. So you have, you have these things for security. We've been doing this for a while. We're saying this is secure. Um, and designing. And so now what we're doing is we're bringing in a privacy component that just says, hey, we're gonna, what are we doing with the actual data? 
with it? What, what's, what's happening there and how do we protect that? And how do we protect our, our users? Is there anything extra that can we do? Can we employ data minimization? Can we remove data when it's no longer in use? Which causes a big problem when your company needs to do a data lake or data warehouse. And you need to capture all of this data. If, it's, if the data doesn't include personally identifiable information, which by the way, if you capture an IP address, an IP address is considered PAI, but it's only PAI when it's an aggregate with something else that where you can identify an actual individual, you know, then you have to make exceptions. Well, I'm gonna keep this, this IP address because I need it. And then you have other standards such as PCI that requires log retention for a year, that sort of stuff. So, and, and something we don't talk about um, much at all is that security, um, privacy, is the, sorry, privacy is the same in a sense, regardless of the size of the organization, but there are different challenges. So the, the, the larger you become, the harder it is for you to grasp all the different pieces that are happening, all the different moving parts and where you're storing things. Security has the same problem and it's something that we don't talk about much, if at all. The security for a 50 person startup is different than that has nobody assigned to security. To when you get to like 150 people, you start saying, well, I've got a security director. I might have a security guy. I might have a singular compliance person. And then as you get up to about 850, things change. And now you're, you know, on that scale from 150 to, to 850, you're looking at how do I, how do I replicate? How do I consolidate? How do I uniformly set the standard across everything? And then once you get above 850, uh, then it kind of, it begins to scale and you have harder problems. And this is more complicated when you have not only remote base, but now you have physical people, right? Because your challenges are different. We've traditionally talked about web security and authentication security. And we don't talk much about these days. We used to talk about it all the time. We don't talk about it much these days with, about the physical security and the people in the office and the standard builds that everybody has to have on laptops and how do you manage laptops and mobile device management, uh, you know, and, and, and the variety of exposures because you, your, your attack surface expands with the number of people that you have. And that's really the problem. If you can, if you can narrow the attack vectors down, then you just have to worry about the volume um, right of, of what's exposed. So when people like the people that are listening to this podcast, some of them might be probably in larger scale things, right? It, it, it's completely different when you look at a startup versus say the, the somebody that works at the state level and has, you know, 450 employees that work for them, right? So it's, it's different. And that's why it's always, it's the, 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 the tagline, right? It depends. It really right. depends on what you're actually looking at the going after. Yeah, because I, I agree. I mean, I think we know how to solve the problem. You know, we know we need the standard builds. We need vendor man or um, vulnerability management, right? We need to patch. We've got, we know what to do. We've got to have, you know, multiple factor authentication. Um, but how do you roll that out? I think is what you're getting at, right? Like in the scale of that is what's challenging. Um, are there any tools that you use or any, any products that you recommend for helping with that scalability? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Um, the first one that comes to mind is my brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> right. So we're always, everybody's always hawking the latest tool, you know. Oh, hey, we're going to use. I saw your, sorry to interrupt, but I saw on your LinkedIn page, do not, if you're a vendor, do not contact me. <laughs> and me. I, 
I echo that, but yes. <laughs> I know I get uh, several times, even with that in there several times a day, I get literally a day, I get messages on LinkedIn. Hey, I want to add you because I want to introduce you to this brand new tool. Um, and LinkedIn uh, LinkedIn is sort of morphed into this uh, this marketing platform as well. So there are there are always a number of good tools that you can use to solve a problem. But I think um, we always like to talk about our favorite tool because oftentimes it really helps us. Um, and what, where I start is actually just before that, which is I use, I try to in, invoke my brain, which I don't do very often because I'm not that smart. <laughs> but but, but by, what I mean by that is I want to think through the problem first. Is it really a problem? Do we have to take the commercial the, the standard commercial approach to it. Is there some way that I can tweak a setting here, change a process there, which solves my problem without having to deal with it, right? So maybe your problem is I don't, you know, uh, HR is maintaining personal data from employees on their laptops because they're sharing around spreadsheets and stuff. Well, maybe the, the instead of having to go off and buy uh, uh, an expensive piece, piece of mobile device management software, maybe the solution is to, to get them to stop doing that and put it in the cloud someplace or in a data center where you can control access to it. So I always want to look at it from first principles, which is difficult, especially when you see a tool going, oh, this would really help with incident management. Oh, wow, Sentinel-1 antivirus does behavioral analysis and I can do blah, 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 blah right? Um, and so there's lots of things. So then, then the next step is when I, when I look for products, I look to see how much utility can I get out of it? So in the, in the, in the Unix Linux world, right, we always, our, the main focus is always one program does one thing and it does it really well. So you try not to complicate things. But when I look for a vendor tool, it's actually the opposite. Um, I want to see how much utility can I get, you know, how much bang can I get for my buck? So I'll use, I'll use uh, Sentinel-1 has been a supporter of, of Colorado Equal Security. So I'm going to use them as an example. Plus, I, I actually use them as my antivirus currently. But with Sentinel-1 antivirus, you can do, you have the behavioral, an, an, um, behavioral analytics that come with it. Um, you also have list of app packages. So ooh, good. Now I can see what everybody's running on their computer without having to buy mobile device management. It has a network firewall, right? And so I, I can get a couple different things for the same price, which is nice. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that utility is, is critical. And I do agree that, you know, when you have so many vendors, so many tools in the environment, it's hard to manage all of them. Right. And then you actually are increasing your, your, um, your, your threat vector because you've got additional products and vendors to manage. So Let, let's, let's highlight this one for just a minute um, because you just said something very interesting because you were talking about vendor management. And I will say, here's a unique perspective for me. Vendor management is a huge problem when it comes to privacy because you have, you, it, even for, so most people that are listening to this probably have SOC 2, right? And SOC 2 says you're going to review all of your vendors. So you have to go through and review your vendors for a couple different reasons. One, you need to make certain that you've got, especially a new one, you need to make sure that you have a finance approval. You need to make sure you have a business approval. But then the hard part comes in. You need to do a security review on them. And how do you do that? Do you send them, do you send them in a spreadsheet? Do you use a, a separate tool? Do you send a questionnaire? Um, do, do you invoke third-party providers like Risk Recon and Security Scorecard? Right. And then you have that piece. But you also correspondingly have the compliance side, which we typically have a 
done that much of, um, but GDPR is forcing us to, and that is, do they have good terms and service? Do they have a privacy policy? Are the GDPR compliant? Can I get a DPA or standard contractual clauses? What, and, and my favorite, what, <laughs> what is the indemnification limits? Because everybody tries to screw you with indemnification. So how do you, de- how do you deal with this? And so you, you end up spending, like for me, it's a huge chunk of my time. I spent, my, my team spend an amazing amount of time just working on the prep for vendor management. Once we have a, the vendors approved, then it becomes the, the standard monitoring. Unless, of course, they are critical to your infrastructure. If they're critical to your infrastructure, then you have additional problems because you need to make sure that you review them at least annually, if not more, right? And make it sure that you have all of your, you understand how they interact and make sure that there's better business continuity and all this other stuff that goes with it. So it's kind of a nightmare. That's, that's why people have procurement departments to help solve a lot of this. But in smaller shops, they don't have procurement, right? They have finance and they might have a security guy. So it really depends. Again, it's the size that comes into play, right? How big are you and how much can you support? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think choosing the right vendors, I call them partners, right? Because really they're your partners in business and people need to look at them that way. And picking a good partner at the beginning that can grow with you, um, I do think is critical. The one thing you didn't mention was breach, right? Like, have they had any incidents? Have they had any breaches? Are they, you know, like, what is their risk tolerance towards? Do they have business insurance? You'd be surprised how many people have have answered no to my security questionnaire. (laughs) So that, there you go. You know, like there's, it's like, you know, grading papers, your resume. Exactly. Check, you know, spelling is incorrect, throw them out. No insurance, throw them out. So. Uh, One of the other things that we like to do on the podcast is talk about how to get new people into the field, right? So how did you start in security and what recommendations do you have for new people getting into this field? Ah, it's a double header. I like it. So security was interesting. So I, I started out in my career as an application developer. I went to, I went to college and I said, Ooh, I want to be, I want to be a network, um, I want to be a network engineer. And when I got in there, I realized that all the jobs were application development jobs. So I changed my hat and I started doing application development. Um, and from there, I quickly became like a sysadmin on my own time. I still do an application development, but I went into project management. So I have this really kind of securitist route. So I'm doing project management and, and I'm at home, I'm working on, you know, my server, I have a server rack in the basement. And then now I do here in Colorado, I'm, I'm the IT director of Rocky Mountain Ham Radio. And we have um, 240 systems spread out between Wyoming, Colorado and New Mexico, where we do microwave links off top of mountains. Um, we have routers, routers, repeaters, servers, really fun stuff. Anyway, um, I was doing this, I was doing program management um, for a company called uh, uh, Lenaro, Linux on ARM. They're the ones that, that put um, basically Android on new devices. And uh, I started asking, you know, who's patching, simple questions, who's, who's, who's patching this, uh, this AWS virtual machine that we've got running? Oh, how, who's, how's the authentication working for this? And the next thing I know, this, the, the COO of Lenaro came to me and said, listen, we'd like you to be our IT director. And I'm like, well, I, I don't really have any experience for that, but I'll try it. Um, I'm going to have a sysadmin experience, but not at scale, which is right. So I got into it that way. And I was like, well, and it, it kind of grew from that, from the, the security point. It's like, oh, this is interesting. And how do I secure? And it really, for me, it was, it was driven from um, the same reason I'm into privacy, which is my desire to protect. I want to protect 
strangely enough, not necessarily myself, but I want to protect others. I want to protect the, my colleagues that I have really good friendship with. I want to mm -hmm. protect our users. I want to protect my family that uses the platform. Now, at the same time this is happening, my wife was a Facebook admin. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and I was hearing, now this was several years ago, and but I was hearing all of these wonderful stories from her about how this broke and how that didn't work. And this, So that really kind of drove, it did two things. One is it, it helped me exit the Facebook platform <laughs> very quickly. Um, and it also really impressed upon me how, um, you know, how much this was interesting. I mean, how, how much this was a problem. And then, of course, I, I was talking with Julian Assange before, um, be, before he got imprisoned and everything. And, you know, he started doing his, his WikiLeaks and stuff. And, and I've, you know, I've met, um, I, was a, I was a goon at DEF CON for several years. So the 303 guys that are on the call, props out to you. Um, so I got to meet a lot of really interesting people. And so I, I realized that I had this passion for it. And then, uh, and then it just sort of took off. And then I, I, I got into the security, I got into the privacy piece, and I thought, wow, this is the, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. So since I've gotten into that, what I've done is through there's this uh, the group that I belong to called the the um, Internet Security Leaders uh, Foundation (ISLF), and we have a mentoring program where we uh, go out to various colleges. Um, Merit, I think, is our current one in in California, where we mentor people that are actually going through their cybersecurity program. And so we give them real world experiences. So it's a bunch of people that are in, operated in this CISO function to help guide them into different roles. So how do you get people, if you're brand new, your question was if they're brand new, how do I, what advice do you have for them? And there are a couple different specialty tracks in security. Um, at the basis of almost all of them, are strong system administration skills um, because system administration skills are, the, are a huge chunk of what's needed in the CISSP exam, which I highly recommend. Um, and so I would start with that and then it really depends on where you wanna branch out to. Do you want to do you want to do pen testing? Do you want to do do you do you actually want to do development? Because there are people in security that do development. Some of my some of my uh, uh, employees at platform actually code. Uh, in various different languages to help us. Some of them are just internal scripts. Some of them are actually, we built a wrapper around Tenable so that we could go off and, and on demand acquire access privileges to a specific VPC so we can scan it and then drop the access privileges again so we don't have to give it read only. So these are one of the things that you, you need to consider. So if you were to have a company like Rapid7 based, I think they're in Boulder, aren't they? Um, they, you know, companies oftentimes will have a, agent that runs on your VPC and they have basically got access to everything. And there's no way I'm going to put that in my environment. Right. So how do you, how do you get around that? So, sorry, I, get to, I, I went on a tangent there. Yeah, no, no, that's perfect. And I think, so can you talk a little bit more about the mentoring project? I don't know if everybody's familiar with that because I think that's a problem we're really trying to solve as a community. Right. I, it's been very, it's been highly received by the people that are in it, both the mentors and the mentees. So, uh, ISLF in particular, but there's no reason why those of us here at Colorado Security couldn't do the same thing for Colorado colleges, like, you know, like Metro, et cetera. So anybody that, any college that has a security program, um, we could create a relationship with and provide volunteer mentoring to the people going through that. And it could be anything from help me. I don't understand, uh, I don't understand this piece in class. So like advanced tutoring. 
So right. a case example for that is uh, one of the classes at Merit. They give you a dump of syslog, authlog, a variety of others, and your goal is to recreate, understand what happened in a breach uh, and recreate it and then Right. And so part of that is walking through that and showing, showing people, here's what happened. This is what happened. Look at the timestamps. Look at the IP addresses. Where is this actually coming from? Um, it's all the way to my, I need, I need some direction on my career. Should I go to, should I get this certification? Should I, should I go into the government? And what are the, what is the, the responsibilities there. I've got an I've got an information assurance level two, and I want to get an information assurance level three. Oh wait, I want to get into the management piece. So maybe, maybe is the you know certified information security manager. Maybe that's the way to go. So as part of the mentoring, we do everything from how are you doing your studies to some advanced work on pen testing because that's typically what the majority of these cybersecurity um, programs are. Uh, all the way through, where do I go from my you know, how, how did you get there and how do I get, how do I get to be a security information security, a certified information security manager? How do I get to be the CISO of a company? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think everybody who goes into security thinks they want to be the CISO, right? And you have to have one CISO and lots of people who are not. Um, and so, I mean, what do you tell people that they're like, I want to be the CISO of the organization? Uh, yeah, so the, the real answer is most CISOs love the job, uh, but it is an, a royal pain. Um, and, it's, it's, and you can just see this by looking at how many CISO had the turnover on CISOs today. Um, they drop in like flies. And that's because of the, there's an overwhelming amount of responsibility and direction. They're expected to know it all. They're expected to be almost, almost foolproof. Um, and it's difficult for that to happen. So <clears throat> to build your experience up to a CISO, there's plenty of different tracks for that, but ultimately you have to deal with the, the principle of um, application security, physical security, um, uh, incident management, uh, business continuity planning, disaster recovery, all that stuff, along with this, your whole heart of certifications um, that go through it just to start. So you have to have the full breadth of what we consider to be security today. And you can't just have surface knowledge, you have to have in-depth knowledge. Um, and so the way I describe it is, um, you know, you could teach it if you had to. Right. And so once you have that level across the majority of items, um, that's probably an indicator that you're qualified to go do that role. Um, and what would really help if you have the opportunity is to find yourself a mentor before you get into the job and then after you get into the job. There are, there are CISOs who mentor other CISOs because the the, again, things are different depending on the size of the company and the, the nature of what you're trying to protect. So that's really, the, that's part of the key there. Um, let me stop there. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. And I think mentorship is, is probably a great place to kind of land the interview. So um, is there anything that I haven't asked you or that you wanted to talk about that we haven't already talked about? I don't know. We've covered we've covered a number of different things. I'm, I mean, obviously, my privacy is my bread and butter because there's so much work there. You would think that security is where the majority of the work is, but the privacy component of it, uh, due to the legal obligations, is even more. And we haven't really talked about what happens if you're in a regulated environment um, either. We I know we have lots of lots of people uh, in Colorado Equal Security that are in regulated environments, and they, uh, you know, right now they're going, oh boy, uh, you have no idea how bad I've got it. You know. Right. I know. <laughs> so, so cloud security versus physical security. So there's many aspects of it. Yeah, no, I do think that, you know, we could talk for hours as opposed to the 30 minutes, but um, 
Well, it sounds like we kind of covered everything that at least was on my mind and your mind. So any parting um, words? Stay safe and protect your authentication pathway. That is probably the today in today's realm so far from what I'm seeing, authentication tends to be the most uh, exposed um, outside of the typical, you know, keeping up with a patch cadence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to people are the, you know, they can either be your greatest weakness or your greatest asset. Right. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joey. It's been a pleasure to chat and, and talk more. And um, this is Colorado Equal Security. Everybody have a fabulous year. Bye. Thank you. Bye everybody. Bye. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.